Uh, morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, could I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll, uh, we'll pick up from where we left off last Sunday. Uh, for, for quite a few weeks now, we have been thinking about, well, what does it mean or what does it look like to live a Christian life 24-7? To live a life worthy of our calling, our gospel calling, to live a life reflective of our true identity. And so we have been reading this New Testament letter together for a number of months now. And from really the beginning of chapter four, we've begun to identify and highlight lots of things that we as Christians should do and shouldn't do, or should wear or shouldn't wear, to use kind of Paul's figure of speech. And we're going to continue to do that this morning because in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5, which is where we are now, Paul describes how Christian living is and should be different, distinctly and distinctively different from how non-Christians live. How being a Christian should inform and transform the way you speak. It should impact the thoughts that you have and you entertain. The choices that you make, the attitudes that you hold, the lifestyle that you live, the actions and the behavior that you express. If, if you're a Christian, then there should be some kind of distinctive difference in how you live. And so, for example, last week, as we read the first five verses of chapter five, we discovered two things you should do and six things you shouldn't do. Now, I'm not going to ask to see how many people can remember, okay? But here are the two things that we should do. One, imitate God. Two, walk in love or live a life of love. That's what we as Christians should be about, imitating God, walking in love, loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, and loving people. It's as simple as that. The six things we shouldn't do, or to put it the way Paul puts it, the six things that are improper for God's holy people to do are, number one, there cannot even be a hint, that's the language of Scripture, I'm not ramping this up, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality among us. And so last week we spent quite a bit of time talking about sex and making the point that sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of its God-given, God-designed, God-intended context. Now, as expected, last week provoked quite a response. Uh, and thank you for all your feedback personally on last Sunday morning and also via email. One of the things I suggested, and quite a few of you have picked up on, is the need for a safe place to talk about the issues that were raised last Sunday morning. And so I do intend to attempt to create that safe space so for those who want a safe space to talk further about some of the stuff that was raised last week, please keep an ear to the ground to hear of when that will be and where that will be. Number one, 
no sexual immorality. Number two, there should be no kind of impurity, no self-indulgent, I'll do whatever I feel like doing kind of mentality. It just cannot exist in Christian living. Number three, you shouldn't be greedy. You shouldn't always be wanting more or always coveting what someone else has, house, car, partner, money, whatever it is. Just don't go there. And then four, five, and six were all about language. So there should be no obscenity in how you speak. There should be no foolish talk. There should be no coarse joking. Now, as I've said, we're going to continue in a similar vein this morning, identifying more things that you should do and shouldn't do, that you should take off and you should put on. But before we go there, I feel it's necessary for me to say something vitally important. Because there's a very real danger that this could come across as reinforcing the idea that you know something, Christianity is at the end of the day just a list of do's and don'ts. That's all this is sounding like, David. That unless we do this and do these things, and unless we don't do that and those things, then we are beat. We're not good enough. We're not up to this. And there's no chance God will love us or accept us or want anything to do with us. Unless we roll our sleeves up, unless we try harder, unless we sort ourselves out, we're never going to be true Christians. That's what this is all sounding like. And even as I introduce this, you're maybe thinking, oh no, here we go again another Sunday morning with a pile of imperatives that's only setting us up to fail, only setting up to crush us and leave us feeling beat and downcast. And that is a danger. And it's a danger I feel and I sense as I've spoken over the last few weeks. But please, can you look again at verse 1 of this chapter, if you've got a copy of God's Word in front of you. That's why it's so important if you do, or do have a copy of God's Word, that you bring it with you. Look at verse 1 of this chapter, and, and also please think about where we have come in this series. Here is what Paul writes in the first verse of chapter 5. Oh, sorry, Andrew, I've just blanked that out. Great. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. I cannot stress this enough. Or if you've got an NIV, it says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children. So here's the point. This is not about getting into God's family by doing or not doing certain things. We are not urged to imitate God in order to become a child of God. We do all this. We don't do all that because we are children of God. Because we have been adopted, here's how the New Living Translation puts it, imitate God therefore in everything you do because you are his children. So if we go back to the first three chapters of this letter, we have been adopted. We've been celebrating that as a church. We have been adopted. But how have we been adopted? Through Jesus Christ. That was chapter one. It's all about Jesus in him we have been forgiven and we have been rescued. We do not achieve anything by what we do or don't do. Instead, we are received into the family of God by what and because of what Jesus has done. 
So as we have been reading together, we have been brought near, we have been welcomed in, not because of what we do or don't do, but by the blood of Jesus. And do you know what that is? That is grace. It's all grace. None of us here deserve it. None of us have earned it. It's been lavished on us as chapter 1 reminds us. As chapter 2 tells us, we were dead in our transgressions and our sins, but now we are alive. How? With Christ. Not because of anything we have done or haven't done, but because, and I'm quoting, because of God's great love for us. We are here this morning, children of God. That is our identity. And all of this is true. We're saints, we're chosen, we're forgiven, we're saved, we're redeemed, we're sealed, we're secure, we're seated with Christ, we're raised up with Christ, we're God's workmanship. Not because of what you have done or haven't done, but all because of the vast love of God in sending Jesus to save you, to adopt you, to transform you, to redeem you, to seat you with Christ, to raise you up with Christ. And so it goes on. And so here's the point. In light of who you are, in light of your true ID, here is how you live, says Paul, because you belong. Here's how to live as a child of God, a son or daughter of the Father, because you are his. And he knows what is best for you, and he wants what is best for you. And therefore, he says, listen, now that you are my child, here's how to live. Not to earn my love, not to be saved, not to be accepted. You've been accepted in Christ. Christ died for you while you were still a sinner. But now, because you belong, live like this. So please, do not think, oh, here we go again. This is not about making life harder. This is not about adding burdens to anyone or raising the bar to an impossible level. This is about living as God intended. This is about life to the full. This isn't about weights, it's about wings. It isn't about restriction, it's about freedom. It isn't about learning to fail, it's about learning to fly. God says, listen, I want what's best for you. I know what's best for you. Therefore, be sexually immoral. Be impure. Don't be greedy. Watch your language. Imitate God. Walk in love. This is life to the full. You are a child of God, period. In light of that, live accordingly. So, hopefully that has helped. So let's keep discovering what we should do and shouldn't do with that as the kind of understanding. Do you want to stand for the public reading of God's word, please? So this is Ephesians chapter 5. Last week I was meant to cover verses 1 to 20. We got 1 to 5 done. Uh, today we're picking up at verse 6 and we'll see how far we get, okay? So this is Ephesians 5 beginning at verse 6. The words are on the screen. Let no one deceive you with empty words. 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and all that is right and all that is true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk on wine. That doesn't mean you get drunk on gin or whiskey or craft beer, okay? Do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery. And be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Grab a seat, please. Thank you. Okay, so within these verses, there are about five more things that we're told not to do. And there are seven things that we are told to do. And so I simply want to take us through some of those. I'm not sure, as I say, how far we'll get. So here's the first one we're not to do. Do not be deceived by empty words. Let no one deceive you by empty words, says Paul. You see, alongside God's word, alongside God's word, there are any number of voices that will offer you advice and speak into your life in the course of each and every day. So voices that will dismiss God, voices that will contradict God's way of living, voices that will say, for example, picking up the flow of the text, it's good to be sexually immoral. It's liberating. It's exciting. And in any way, biblical values, or certainly this take on biblical values, it's naive, it's antiquated, and it's oppressive. Or there'll be other voices that say, do you know something? It's okay to idealize idealize other things and other people. It's normal to do what you want. It's normal to want what you don't have to be covetous. Sin doesn't really matter at the end of the day. It's no big deal. Those kind of voices are all around us. But what Paul says is, listen, do not be deceived by vacant voices. Do not be deceived by empty words. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. And plenty of people will. Of course they will. And so part of the challenge we face as Christians is to make sure and do what we can to ensure that God's word is constantly being heard and doesn't become a faint whisper or doesn't get drowned out altogether, which takes us back to something we keep coming back to. And I don't apologize for keep coming back to this. 
And that is the importance of regular exposure to and engagement with God's word, that routine Bible study is a seriously crucial holy habit. That unless, unless church, we are consistently and constantly reading God's word, God's voice is just going to become a dull, faint whisper. It'll just get completely drowned out. And so we will get bombarded with voices that say, listen, here's how to live. Here's what we should do with these issues. Here's how we should think about this subject. So please, you're a child of God. You've been adopted, chosen, you belong. Please make sure you're reading God's word on a consistent basis. And Paul adds a solemn warning here alongside this imperative. He, he says, do you know something? God's anger, God's wrath will ultimately fall on those who listen to empty, godless words. Choosing to listen to alternative voices is all of our choices. It's everybody's choice. Of course we can. But there are consequences for listening to them. Not just in this life, but absolutely in the next. So, first thing, do not be deceived by empty words. So my question for this morning is, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Down to verse 8, where we find the next thing we should do. Live as children of light, or in the version I was reading from, walk as children of light. Now what Paul does here, and, and the words are on the screen, Paul kind of presses rewind again, something he does quite often in this letter to the Ephesian saints. He presses rewind, and he reminds the readers, you were once darkness, but now you are light. Now that, that sounds a little strange. He doesn't say you were once in darkness, he actually says you were once darkness. He chooses language here to characterize the core of their being in their pre-Christian state. They were in their very nature dark. It's a bit like what Paul said, and I've already quoted it. It's a bit like Paul said at the beginning of chapter 2, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. So dark and dead defines the spiritual condition of humanity without God. Light and alive is who they are now, these saints, us. But notice the three critical words, and they're on the screen. I know that the text is, is, is small there. Notice the three critical words in verse 8. You are light in the Lord. Again, it's all about Jesus, who once said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Paul says, listen, you were darkness at the very core of your being. By your very nature, you were born like this. You were darkness. But now, because of Jesus, not because of what you, you haven't done or have done, but because of Jesus you are now light. So going back to the instruction, live accordingly. Walk this out. Walk as children of light. This is who you are. This is your identity, your true ID. Walk it 
out. And what does that look like? Again, you know, sometimes we need to dig into this. What does that look like? It's all very well saying walk as children of light, live as children. But what does that look like? Well, verse 9 tells us what it looks like. The visible fruit of a lifestyle walking in light is goodness, righteousness, truth. Living as children of light will be characterized by good works, right conduct, and speaking truth. Every Christian's life should be characterized by those three things. Good works, right conduct, speaking truth. How's, how's your walk been this week? What good works of service have you done this week? What right conduct have you chosen to do this week? What truth have you spoken this week? Or on the flip side of all of those, what have you not done? What have you done that you shouldn't have done? Have you been anything but truthful in certain situations? The next thing Paul says we should do it's verse 10. It's a really short verse. Find out. Next one. Find out what pleases the Lord. Or in another translation, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, try to get your head around how to live in an appropriate, God-oriented way in every situation. Every single situation. This is, this is what it's about. Try to find out what pleases God in your family life, in your work life, in your social life, in church life. And what does that mean? Goodness, righteousness, truth. And as the verse itself says, you've got to discern what is it that is acceptable to God. And, and Paul's been explaining what is acceptable and what is unacceptable to God right from the beginning of verse four. So it's, he says, listen, don't lie. That doesn't please God. Speak truth. Don't tear people down. Build people up. Don't become bitter. Forgive again and again and again. Find out what pleases the Lord and do that. The next thing to avoid is taking part in unfruitful works of darkness. That's a colorful phrase. What, what are unfruitful works of darkness? Well, stripping it back, it probably means don't get involved in any kind of behavior that is displeasing to God and sticking with the stream of teaching. Don't get involved in sexual immorality. Don't get involved in impurity. Don't, get, don't be greedy. Don't speak crudely. Don't take part in any of that. Just don't go there. But the next little phrase is a fascinating one. Here's something else we should do. Expose them. Now, this is tricky. This is really tricky. And this has puzzled many biblical commentators and interpreters, and here's why. Is Paul, I'd love to open this up for discussion. And maybe, and maybe well, I'm not sure. Is Paul telling Christians to expose the unfruitful works of darkness in society and in the lives of our non-Christian neighbors and friends? Or is this directed 
towards other Christians, right? I do want you to think about this for a moment. Is Paul telling Christians to expose unfruitful works of darkness in wider society and in the lives of our non-Christian friends and neighbors and work colleagues and school friends? Or is this directed towards other Christians? Discuss. Now I realize this, this is, I'm about to potentially open a can of worms here. But I actually believe the evidence points strongly in favor of this happening amongst and between Christians. And so going back to chapter 4 and verse 1, where this all starts, where this whole section of teaching starts, well, who is Paul appealing to? He is appalling, he is appealing to, oh, he's appalling, no, he's not appalling. He is appealing, he is appealing to believers to live a life worthy of their calling that is consistent with their new identity, their true ID. And so when he is writing, for example, about sexual immorality and about impurity and about greed, he says, these things are improper for who? God's holy people. So that throws up for me a few questions about our place and our right to impose Christian values on wider society. Can of worms. But it's not for now. Who? Because that's not the issue for now. The point I'm making here is that I believe Paul is writing specifically to Christians, to saints in Ephesus, and telling them, please, you guys who've been chosen and adopted, who belong, who are saved, who are redeemed, who are forgiven, who are sealed and secure, you guys take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Do you know something? If another Christian is involved in any of this kind of behavior, then you need to expose that. Or to use the language of the text, you need to bring that into the light. Now, I fully appreciate that could be abused. And it has been abused. But am I somehow encouraging some people to take on the role of moral monitors running around churches and Christian communities exposing other Christians who they think are doing bad stuff? That's not what this is about. But there is a place taught in Scripture for Christians to admonish one another. It's one of the more uncomfortable one another's. Do you know we love to love one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another, comfort one another. The New Testament is full of these one another's that we have got to practice within the church of Jesus Christ. But this is one of the more uncomfortable ones. Admonish one another. Whenever a brother or a sister in Christ is getting involved in stuff that is anything but helpful, we have a responsibility to draw alongside them and speak into their life, not for the sake of it, not to judge them or to get at them, but to help restore them to help bring them back into the light. Relationship, I know, is vital here. Wisdom is essential. But if we genuinely love one another, then we will care enough not to turn a blind eye. We will care enough not to avoid the difficult conversations whenever we see a friend of ours, a Christian friend of ours, walking down a road, making certain poor choices that is just leading them further and further away from God. 
When was the last time I drew alongside a friend of mine who I know is making bad choices, put an arm around his shoulder and spoke into his life? When? Because it's so hard to do. But Paul says, listen, you guys, you cannot be involved in work, unfruitful works of darkness. You've got to expose them. You've got to bring them into the light. You've got to guide one another along this path. Don't take part in unfruitful works of disobedience. Expose them. Again, I know that raises more questions than answers. Please talk to me about that. But let's move on quickly. And we're going we're gonna to finish. We're going to be finished a wee bit earlier than, than usual. More time to get our coffee before we go, up, those go upstairs. But we're going to finish with this le- next little set of instructions. We're not going to get to the getting drunk part. We're not going to get to the being filled with the Spirit part and singing our hearts out. That's next week. But in verse 15, we read, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So what is the instruction here? What is the thing we should do? The instruction is simple. Walk wisely. And here in Ephesians 5, Paul is urging and encouraging Christians and all Christians to live their lives based on and grounded in the wisdom of God. So what is that? What does it mean to walk wisely? What does it mean to base your life upon and ground your life in the wisdom of God as opposed to the wisdom of the world and the culture and the society around us? What, What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, one of the things it means is we've got to know, we've got to be engaged with, we've got to be understanding and living out the practical, everyday wisdom that we find in the wisdom literature of Scripture. And the wisdom literature of Scripture is Proverbs, it's Ecclesiastes, it's some of Job, it's some of the Psalms. Guidance, instructions, practical help and wisdom on how to do life, how to relate, how to speak, how to conduct ourselves. We need to be knowing what that looks like and living it out. And that's what Paul is saying here. Wisdom literature that teaches, for example, how the beginning of wisdom is found in what? In the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to have a reverence and a respect for God and his ways as revealed in Scripture. That's what it means to fear the Lord. To have a reverence and respect for God and his ways as are revealed in Scripture, which takes us back to the importance and the crucial point of knowing what does God say about this issue, about that issue? What is God saying to me at the moment about how I'm speaking my attitude, my life, and how do I live that out? That's what it means to walk wisely. And Paul then specifies one wise saying from wisdom literature. This may be another instruction, but I think it kind of flows. He says this, make the best use of time or make the most of every opportunity. This is priceless advice. This is about a mindset that lives in the moment, that doesn't waste time or wish time away, that doesn't keep harping back to the way it was or looking forward or wishing, I wish it was tomorrow, I wish it was next week, I wish it was next month, I wish it was next year. But rather, this is a mindset that says, you know something, I am going to live in the present and see opportunity in every moment. I make the best use of those God-given time that I'm living in right now. A mindset that realizes, you know, now is the time to worship. Now is the time to do the right thing. Now is the time to speak truth. Now, Now is the time to do the good work. And why do we need that sort of mentality, says Paul? Why do we need to make the best use of time and the most of every single opportunity? Because the days 
are evil. And so Paul says, listen, see in these dark days, walk as children of light now. Right now. Make this decision, make this choice right now. There's so much in, in those verses that we have looked at this morning. I hope you can kind of take them away and chew over on them. But as I close, three times since the beginning of chapter five, we come across this word walk. Three times. And we're told to walk in a particular way or live in a particular way, depending on your translation. And the three ways of this, walk in love, walk as children of light, walk wisely. And it's my prayer that as we leave here this morning, that we will walk this way. We will walk this way. Not because we have to. Not because we'll get hammered if we don't. But we'll walk this way because we are children of God and we belong to our Father who knows what is best for us, wants what's best for us, and therefore says, hey, here's how to dress properly. Here's what you need to be taken off. Here's what you need to be putting on in order to live life as it was meant to be lived. Let's pray together. Father, we, we recognize that, that your word is so practical. In so many ways, it's so down to earth. And so help me, save me from complicating it. Help me to hear your word but not just to hear it, to obey it, to walk it out. And so I pray for each person in this room this morning who is a child of God, who's a son or daughter of Father God, that you will enable them to leave this place this morning, step into this day, step into this week, and walk as children of light, knowing how to do that, knowing what they should be doing, shouldn't be doing. So God, go with us. Empower us, enable us, strengthen us and help us. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We're going to finish with a song, Over All the Earth. You reign on high. And the second verse says, Over every thought and over every word, may my life reflect the beauty of of my Lord. So let's stand together and can he use this as a, a closing prayer?